funny. I was, I was at a, um, a promotion ceremony uh, yesterday. And, and it is totally funny because the guy who was there, his, his little, he's sitting there like, you know, very, very proper as they're going through it. And his little girl has this water gun. And she's standing like right at the edge of the stage going, shh, shh, shh. And like she doesn't even notice. I got a picture. I'm not, I'm not going to show you, but it was, it was just totally funny to me. And I thought, raise up a child in the way they shall go. And <laughs> it was just totally funny. Okay, so a couple things. First off, uh, Tuesday, election day. Um, we don't tell you guys what to vote for. We always preach Jesus, you know, not politics, but you guys should vote, all right? If, if you're registered, great, go vote. If you're not, make sure you register for the next one. It is a great privilege to live in a country where we get the ability to vote, so vote, vote. It is a privilege, it is a right, it's an honor that God would allow us to live where he allows us to live, so vote. All right, a couple things. Uh, Christmas for Kids is coming up on December 6th. If you've been around here before, this is a time when we help uh, kids who need a little bit of, you know, Christmas love and cheer. Again, it's on December 6th, and so if you have volunteered in the past, you want to volunteer again, put that in the back of your mind. You can. There's a sign-up sheet this morning that will get a hold of you and start talking about that and what that means. Uh, also, next Saturday, next Saturday is the Women's, the Imam's Bazaar. Okay? It's going to be right out here in the parking lot. they got tons of vendors. Uh, you should all come because my wife is one of those vendors. And I, we have all this great stuff, crap, in the garage. <laughs> She's been working on it. She loves her projects. It's wonderful. Please don't let her come home with anything. Okay? Please. I, 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 she, it's cool little furniture and everything. So I, Come to the bazaar. Check it out. You don't buy it if you don't need to, but, you know, if you're so inclined that you love Jesus, please don't let this stuff come on. <laughs> She's working this morning. <laughs> no, no, seriously. It's, it's a great event. It's, it's really cool, but you guys should come. And, 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 and hey, if you're, if you're doing one of the booths, if, you, if you're selling some stuff, and she wants to buy something from you, just say no. Again, she's not here today, so. Plant, hashtag planting roots. <laughs> Just be like, um, just, just what it is. No, it's, it's a great event. So you guys should come out for it, especially if you're looking for uh, little uh, things to give away as Christmas presents and stuff. There's a lot of people doing a lot of cool things. So 9 to 3, Saturday. My wife's got a booth. Again, I know I've said it 10 times, but it's got to be said again. Welcome to Elnet. My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on every communion table throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app and it's called Version. Click on Live and Version. It will bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get the sermon notes and the verses and the questions and all that goes along with today's message. I want you to stay on the reading of God's Word. We will get started. This is Matthew chapter 10, verse 9, and Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us how to be a people who understand the narrow and the broad ways and to live in life that you call us to abundantly, understanding the great grace that you have bestowed upon us so our lives could be those who live in the places that you call us to, of freedom and wonder and the majesty of who you are. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is week 38. If you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And the week I was writing this message up, there's a gazillion things going on in my life. 
And so this either has the potential to be amazing or thoroughly confusing. I am shooting for amazing, in case you're wondering, but it could go the other way. We'll see. Uh, Today we're looking at one of the greatest verses in the scriptures that so many people want to misinterpret. And you have to understand how we get to. We've been working for 38 weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus today is going to start wrapping up his Sermon on the Mount. But everything goes together to get here. Everything we've been through. So if you're new this morning, I think you'll understand where we're going, but there's so much depth behind this. And so there's going to be a little bit of apologetics today that's, you know, defending the faith that we call our own, that Jesus has first given to us. Uh, And so coming out of that, it's going to be also a little bit uh, practical for you in your life. So Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that's my preface to the verse. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And in the King James Version, which I know you all probably brought this morning with you, it actually says, straight is the gate. Now, ESV uses the word narrow. The the uh, King James Version uses the word straight. But in its oldest roots, it means confined. And it, and it does mean narrow, but it also means pinch, that there is like a narrow, straight way. Unfortunately, in our modern American language, the only place we use the word straight anymore, if it's not like a road, it's like straight jacket, right, which is also very confining. And the King James says, straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. I think it's really kind of interesting because, again, Jesus at this point is nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and he brings it home, and he gives three warnings. And he says, uh, talks about narrow gates. Uh, next week, we'll talk about you know, fruit bearing. And then a few weeks after that, we'll talk about what type of foundation that we have laid our lives upon. And Jesus starts to get really tough in his wording now because what he's starting to say is, my teaching is not to be praised, it's to be practiced. My teaching is not meant to be commended or just commended. It's meant to be carried out. And so sometimes when you say, oh, that was a nice sermon, or I really like that place in the Bible when I read that, that's just not what it's there for. It's meant to be lived out. He teaches us the way that he does because he believes the word of God in our lives can bring transformation, that he can bring transformation. Even when you come to a church service, you know, why did you come? Did your friend twist your arm and make you come? Or did you come wanting to be inspired or reason that makes you feel good or whatever? That's really not the central reason why we gather. Timothy Keller says this, Jesus has never, ever told anyone something just so you might know it. Jesus gives you nothing just to be known. Jesus only ever gives us truth so will come into our lives and revolutionize and transform us. This is why Jesus is talking the way that he is here, because in a sense, he is setting us straight. That's my pun. No? All right. First service didn't get it either. I thought it was funny, but okay. Uh, And now Jesus starts to talk about this by talking about the narrowness of the gospel. And I've got a really tough job to do today because you know how hard it is to get people in our culture to be narrow? When I say, hey, I need you to be narrow. What? No, I'm not going to be narrow. Our culture hates the idea of narrowness. Jesus deliberately chooses a word that we despise as a way of starting to talk about how to be a disciple of his. I mean, the last thing we want to be is is called narrow. It's You disparage somebody when you call them narrow-minded. Nobody wants to be called that. And to one degree, that's kind of healthy because you don't want to be like the Pharisees who reduce the gospel to a set of rules and regulations. God forbid we ever do that. Yet Jesus in some way is saying that we must be narrow or he wouldn't have chosen the word. He says, if you want to follow me, you have to understand that narrow way. So today we're going to kind of talk about that narrowness and, and what it actually means. I was listening to somebody recently tell a story about, uh, about the college that they're a dean of. And the college that they're a dean of is 60-40 female-male. So if you're a dude, you've got great odds going to the school. 
And so he spoke about this young guy at the school. The guy's name is Bob, who took him out to lunch one day to talk to the dean about his dilemma. And so this is what they do when they're out to lunch. Bob says, you know, this school is 60, 40 female, male. Half the guys here don't know it. The other half of the other half have no guts. So I've got a 10 to 1 ratio. He goes, it's amazing. It's amazing. He goes, I date a lot of girls. It's a lot of fun. He goes, but lately I've been spending a lot of time with Ashley, and Ashley is great. We can talk. We can laugh. Ashley's really smart. She understands me. We've been spending time together for six months now, and it's wonderful. But, and the dean goes, ah, but, but you don't want to be confined to one relationship, right? And so Bob says, you know, what if something better comes along? And the dean of the school, who's a Christian, and Bob is a Christian, and the dean says this, and these are wonderful and amazing words. He says, you will never know the true depth of love until you commit to it and to it only. You will never know the true depth of love until you commit to it and to it only. See, it's interesting. When you commit to something like that, it's, it's a straight path. It's narrow. It's like a straight jacket. It comes very close together. I know some of you are married. You're thinking, yeah, it's like a straight jacket. It's very, you know... <laughs> This is the understanding that Christianity itself is narrow, but in a vital way. It's, it's narrow in that it demands focus and authenticity. And out of that comes commitment and discipline. Anybody who has accomplished anything knows the narrow gate is the way into fullness. Like, if you decide you want to be a doctor, right? I mean, a good doctor, not like the one on 30 Rock, but you know, like a good doctor. It means there's years you do nothing but study. And years after that, you go to residency, and you do nothing but prepare to be a doctor. You're absolutely narrow. You are fully committed. If you want to be a world-class musician, you spend 8, 10, 12, 14 hours a day doing nothing but practicing your instrument. That's narrowness. But it's the only way into the fullness of a great performance. If you want to make money, you've got to intensely look at different types of investment opportunities. You've got to look and look and discern and discern and only go after the authentic and the good ones and get rid of the other ones. It's extremely narrow. It's the way that everything kind of is. And Jesus says in the spiritual realm, it's kind of the same way. See, most people are willing to accept this and be okay with the narrowness, like in physical conditioning or the narrowness of musical practice. But when it comes to relationship with Jesus, we're like, oh, well, well, maybe not so much. Jesus says, you find narrowness leading to fullness in all these other areas because I built the universe like that. And so Jesus says there are two roads and only two roads in spiritual matters. He describes these two roads. He tells you how to be on the right road. It is blunt. It is clear. It's unmistakable as you can get. It is black and white. There are no fine lines. And in speaking of two roads, Jesus says that there's really no neutrality. In spiritual things, no one's on the fence. No one is actually standing still as much as you want to say, well, I don't know what I'm doing. He goes, there's two roads. You're moving one way or the other. There's two different destinations. If you're on the right road, you're going towards life. If you're on the wrong road, every minute you're on it, you're moving further and further away from life. See, and right away it brings up a lot of problems for us because this teaching of Jesus puts him on a collision course with virtually all modern thinking in the last 150 to 200 years. In 19th century Europe, the idea began to be taught that all religions were basically the same. And you would have books comes out. There's a guy who wrote, wrote a bestseller at the time. His name is Ludwig Feuerbach which I know you probably all have his book and you've read it, right? It's called The Essence of Christianity. And the whole idea behind this book and other books is that the essence of any religion is whatever it has in common with every other religion in the world. The assumption is that all religions or all faiths are the same. And so about 150, 200 years ago, there's this thing that gets put forward where uh, faith is like a mountain. And on top of the mountain is God, and every religion has different roads to the top of that mountain, and everybody's got to find their own road to the top because there are many roads but one destination. Oh, grasshopper, you know, like that. 
So the teaching again starts 150, 200 years ago in Europe, has now come down into our culture today, you know, and America has an extremely strong version of that. I mean, almost all of us have heard it one way or the other, directed either towards us or to somebody else or somebody on TV, and it goes like this. You mean to tell me that you believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father or to heaven or to whatever and no other? Does that mean that you believe that sincere people around the world who don't believe like you believe are eternally lost? You heard that? Right, all the time. And people say, well, it's unbelievable, it's bigoted, it's prejudiced. I mean, that's the prevailing view in our culture today. Now, the U.S. Constitution, when it was written, is committed to this idea that all religions should be equally tolerated, they can be practiced in our country. And I think, I think that's a great thing. But today we use this idea in the Constitution, we merge it with the current worldview, and not to say that all religions should be equally tolerated, but we say all religions are equally correct. And those are two completely different things. The Constitution doesn't say that, but that's the belief. Uh, today, even many Protestant denominations, they're pulling back their missionaries from overseas places because they don't want people to think that we believe our faith is superior to any others. And when I say faith and religion, I'm using those right now in the loosest term possible. But Jesus says in simplest terms, there are two roads and only two roads. And there are only two destinations. This is diametrically opposed to the modern model, which says there are many roads and one destination. Jesus has always been as blunt as he can be. John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The disciples and the apostles got this. Acts 4.12, they say, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. I mean, it can't be clearer. And so what do we do about this head-on collision? What do we do about the charge that in its essence, Christianity is bigoted? And this is where you get good apologetics of how you defend your faith. And here's the answer to that question. The charge of bigotry is not true because the charge itself is internally contradictory. What I mean by that, the argument kind of goes like this. You must believe or you must not believe that your religion is superior to every other religion because every religion just kind of fits people. You know, what validates the authenticity of a faith is how it deals in your own heart and life. And therefore, you must not urge your religion or faith on anybody else. You must not evangelize because religion and faith is a private thing, something only individuals can find in their own heart. And that asserts, again, that all religions are subjective, that all religions are equally correct. This is a position that is called religious relativism. Religious relativism. It's a position, again, all are correct, and therefore you shouldn't evangelize. Because if you do believe that your faith has something that everybody else needs, if you believe that Jesus is superior to all these other things, you have to evangelize. But on the other side of that, if you believe that no religions are superior, you're still evangelizing your religious relativism view. If you urge me not to tell people about Jesus, you're urging your religion upon me. You're evangelizing me not to evangelize. You're doing the very same thing you're telling me not to do. Because there is no way not to evangelize. So even when you say don't evangelize, you're doing it. Because what you do is you're evangelizing your relativistic view on my objective view. And what's really interesting is that up until about 150 or 200 years ago, religions and faiths, they had no problem being honest. Today, we just we can't be honest about anything. It's like all religions and faiths essentially said, look, we may all be wrong, but we can't all be right. I mean, if you disagree with somebody, you can say, well, you could be wrong and I could be right, or I could be wrong and you could be right, or we could both be wrong, but you can't both be right. So the real question comes down to who's right. And it's not a haughty thing. It's not a prideful thing. It's just a view of what's right. So 150, 200 years ago, the Enlightenment began to say, well, everybody's right. Everybody's right. Isn't that really nice? Everybody's right. We're so tolerant and wonderful, everybody's just right. Well, that's a view. And it means if you don't believe everybody's right, well, you've got to be wrong. But there's no such thing as everybody being wrong because everybody's right. 
But if everybody's right, and I say, I don't think everybody's right, then I'm wrong? No, you're right. Well, how can I be right? If I, see, it just goes back and forth. It's like you're forbidding the very thing that you're saying you're not. It doesn't make sense. You just broke the rule that you set. It's impossible to do. And this is how a culture gets so mixed up that they don't even know which end is up when you cannot even embrace simple truth. And if you're a Christian besides that, you don't even have a choice in the matter. Because Jesus comes out unlike any founder of any other major faith, and he claims to be God. Buddha didn't claim to be God. Muhammad didn't claim to be God. Confucius didn't claim to be God. Jesus alone did. And if he is right, then he is the only way to God. But if he is wrong, he's not even a way because he's a lunatic. Either he is the way or he's no way. He is not just a way. And Christians are simply in that position. And if you think about it logically, you realize that's true. Jesus says there's only two ways, just two. Is it bigoted to say two plus two equals four? And someone else comes along and says, no, no, I think 2 plus 2 equals 5. And we say, well, you have your right to your common core, you know, government math opinion. You know, you can do that if you want to. Is it bigoted to say you're wrong and your checkbook's going to be completely jacked up until you understand how math actually works? Let me help you. It is not intolerant or bigoted of me to say when someone's out of touch with reality. Truth operates like that in every other realm, but we don't want it to operate like that when it comes to faith. This is why we must understand, when people give the charge of bigotry, bigotry is not conviction. Bigotry is haughtiness. Bigotry is pride. Bigotry is coldness. Bigotry is very harsh. But it is not conviction of the truth. And so if Jesus said the things he said and Jesus was right, then that means there are many people who are out of touch with what the truth is. And we must understand that. And if people are out of touch with the truth, there are eternal consequences to that. All right. So whether you agree with me or not, we're on the same page now, right? Uh, okay, if not, go back and listen to it. It'll be on the podcast starting tomorrow. Okay, all right. So, Matthew seven thirteen and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So I'll give you four things with this. Number one, where do these roads lead? Now, as I looked at and talked about the word narrow, narrow has very negative connotations and references. The word wide has very broad and positive associations and references that deal with it. The word narrow, it literally means to be squashed or crushed or pinched. Like if I step on a bug, what does it die from? Narrowness. (laughs) Narrowness. Your physical being needs a certain amount of space to breathe and survive. So squish, very narrow. Now, the word broad on the other side has very positive ramifications. It means spaciousness and freedom. The psalm writer is constantly saying things like Psalm 89, you have led me into a broad place. It's like I walk at large, I have a lot of freedom. And it's very shocking that Jesus would use such a negative word for the right way and such a positive word for the wrong way. And beyond that, he goes even further. Because Jesus doesn't only say that, he says the broad way leads to destruction and the narrow way leads to life. The broad way leads to narrowness. And yet the narrowness leads to freedom and spaciousness. See, the very thing that looks superficially very spacious, do whatever you want, leads to very suffocating, deadly narrowness as sin begins to destroy you. The thing that superficially looks very narrow is the one thing that leads to life and vastness and possibility and breadth and freedom and truth and hope and grace. Uh, In the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia by by C.S. Lewis, a man goes into a stable. It's a tiny little stable. And he walks inside the stable and he looks up. And inside the stable, he sees this huge, vast sky. He sees a forest and lakes and trees and all this stuff. And he says this. It seems then that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. And the guy standing next to him says, yes, its inside is bigger than its outside. 
If you like Doctor Who, they stole the idea from C.S. Lewis right there. See, it's bigger on the inside. If you don't know Doctor Who, I just lost you. Okay, so this is the idea that the gospel on the outside looks to a lot of people in our culture today to be very, very narrow. And it is. But once you step into the narrowness of that gospel, all of a sudden the chains are gone and your life begins to live in true freedom. And the broad way, you know, on the outside, oh, it looks very spacious. Do whatever you want to do. It's very tolerant. But on the inside, it's cramped and narrow. It leads into a hole where your sin eats you and destroys you and you suffocate. It leads to death. That's where it leads. Secondly, so what are these roads? You know, what are the two ways? What does it mean to be on the broad way? What does it mean to be on the narrow way? Uh, Sometimes translations do this. They will talk about the broad way as the easy way and the narrow way as the hard way. You know, some think of of the narrow way as like these people who are very self-disciplined. They take the hard approach and they have a lot of self-denial and they live the Ten Commandments and they're the people who pray all the time and go to church all the time. They live the golden rule that we talked about last week. And the broad way, that's for those losers who just really don't care about anything. don't want to care for the poor. They don't want to pray. They don't want to live the golden rule. Is that's what's going on here? No, not, not at all. See, Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount by saying there's two ways. So he says there's one narrow road, there's one broad road. Then he goes on to talk about trees, and there's two trees. There's one rotten and one good. Then he goes on to talk about there's two types of foundations that houses are laid upon. One's laid upon the rock, one's built upon the sand. If Jesus here is summarizing and concluding his sermon by saying there's two ways, it can't mean he is just introducing the idea right now. It means that those two ways must have been contrasted all the way throughout the last 38 weeks of the Sermon on the Mount. It's like I don't preach a sermon for 30 minutes and I say, you know, fathers love your children, fathers love your children. And the last 30 seconds I say, so, you know, keep your car fixed up so you don't break down in the middle of nowhere. It would make no sense. You'd be like, what does that have to do with, with anything? It has nothing to do with it. In a conclusion of a message, you don't start a new subject unless you're an idiot. And I assume Jesus is not an idiot. So it means throughout the whole thing, Jesus has been talking about these two ways. I mean, for the last year, we've been talking about it. If you go through it, you see it. The Sermon on the Mount is not bad people versus good people. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, don't murder. But I say to you, don't even have that in your heart. Don't even have that hatred in your heart. There's two ways to live. There's a way to live with anger and animosity just sitting in your heart all the time. There's the way that is hope and true freedom. You can live in one of those two ways. I'm showing you two ways. In chapter 6, he says some people care for the poor and they pray all the time, but they do it so other people will honor them. But what do you do? You pray, our Father in heaven. You understand it starts with your Father first, and that goes into prayer, and that goes into generosity, and that goes how to interact with the rest of the world. There are two ways. You know, into chapter 6, beginning to chapter 7, he talks about how to live not anxiously in the world, how not to be so judgmental of people around you. He goes, I don't want you to be these people who look at other people and say, oh, you got a speck in your eye. Let me get that out of there. When you got a big old log hanging out of yours. There are two ways to live. Do you live in the grace of God? Do you live on your own merits? Which one do you do? See, Jesus is not contrasting good people and bad people because we're all bad. He's saying the Broadway, people on that Broadway are a lot of times doing the same things that people on the narrow way are actually doing. But they're using it to get their own self-worth from it. They're trying to save themselves. Everything is done so they can say, well, God will need to hear me now or the universe will have to bless me. See, Jesus does not say here, hard is the way and narrow is the gate. What he says is narrow is the gate and then comes the way. This is kind of like, I think, the book of Galatians before Galatians was written. In the book of Galatians, Paul says, all other religions say, try hard and you'll be saved. Christianity says, be saved. And your life comes out of that. Other religions say, first the road, then the gate. The way is hard, but you can take that gate. If you work hard and do all the right things, you can fight your way in. 
And Christianity says, no, you enter the gate. Why? Because there is one who already fought our fight. There is one who won the gate. There is one who died outside the gate so we could go in. There is one who has done all the fighting for us. The broad way is really judgmental people because in the broad way, people think that their sins are not as bad as they actually are. The broad way is a way for people to feel superior to other people who oppose them. But the people on the narrow way are those who say the real problem is me. It's me. Thirdly, why do the roads lead where they lead? Because, you know, if if you say the only way I can be saved is through Jesus, that's very narrow. It's a very narrow thing. But it's the only way to really live in the expanse of grace. If you believe you are saved by grace, you have to believe somebody else fought the fight for you. Somebody else won for you. That's why you get to just enter. Wide-minded people say, oh, I'm very broad-minded. I would never say you have to believe in Jesus. I would never say that. All good people can go. All good people can find God. And that's very broad-sounding. But what it means is you're saved by your works. You're saved by what you do to make God like you. I mean, what, what is a good person? Who gets to define that? I hate when people say doctrine doesn't matter. It really bugs the snot out of me. People say, well, I don't believe in doctrine. All good people can find God. It doesn't matter what you believe. You know, it, it matters that you live a good life. That's doctrine. That's doctor, doctrine, the justification by works. When you say doctrine doesn't matter, that's doctrine. <laughs> you're, you're preaching a doctrine. So if you say, I'm broad-minded, there's a very narrowness to saying I'm broad-minded. See, Christians, we come in and we know the gospel is narrow. We know that believing in Jesus and grace is narrow. And sometimes we struggle with it. But the opposite side that doesn't realize they're narrow are also very narrow. Because a proud person doesn't realize that they're proud is extremely proud. If you're on this broad road, every event, every instant in your life, everything that happens is fighting for your self-worth. Everything, because it's all based upon you. And if someone robs you of your reputation, that's the only reputation you have. If you believe in God, you're not sure if he still loves you. You're not sure if your friends still care about you. You're not sure that anything in your life is going to work right anymore. If someone comes along and takes it from you or hurts you, you're not sure of anything. Like imagine somebody says, uh, yeah, I'll marry you and leaves you at the altar. What are you going to do with that? I mean, that's huge rejection. What if somebody sabotages your career at work? What are you, you going to do with that? Because if you're on the Broadway, that's the only worth that you have. It's the only honor you have. And you don't have anything else, so you're either going to hate the person that has done that or the organization that has done that, or you're going to hate yourself. You really only have those two options because it's narrowness. The broadness has led to narrowness, and you're chained to it. But when a Christian is willing to be narrow enough to say, I'm saved by grace... Somebody else has paid for me. If somebody else comes along and takes something from you, you know Jesus still loves you. You know that he is still paid for you. You know what you mean to him. You know what he has done for you. You know what you look like to him. You know what is in store for you. The narrowness has led to very spaciousness. It's led to forgiveness and grace and freedom and life. Fourthly, how do you make sure you're on the right way? That's where the rubber meets the road. Okay. I don't got many jokes today, okay? I'm trying, okay? What Jesus is trying to say is that you've got to make a decision. You you really do. If salvation is by works, then there's got to be a cutoff point for how good you have to be. And if you look at the scriptures, the bar is set to perfection. The bar is set to Jesus, okay? To Jesus. Are you better than Jesus? I mean, when it comes to heaven and hell and stuff like that and Judgment Day, it's impossible. The whole idea of Judgment Day is horrible. If it's true that we are saved by our works and God's put a cutoff point somewhere. I mean, it would have to be. I mean, if the cutoff is 3.0 and you're the poor slob that gets 2.99998, it's like, sorry, you missed it. Oh, come on, God. It's point zero 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 two. Really, you can't? Oh, I'll fudge a little bit. Well, what about 2.99997? What about... 
I mean, seriously. But if salvation is based on a matter of relationship and who you're living for, everything is different. See, Buddhism has its eightfold path. The Quran has its five pillars. Hinduism has karma. Confucianism has its filial piety. What Jesus is saying when he says two roads, he's saying that all other religions are the same. But I'm different. I'm completely different. Because Buddhists will say, this is how you reach for God. And Muslims say, no, 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 this is how you reach for God. And Hindus say, no, 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 here's how you reach for God. And Jesus comes along and says, will you stop reaching? Stop reaching. Here's how God has reached to you. Stop your reaching and recognize that I had to die for you. I am the one who reached for you. I mean, all other religions in the world believe that your situation is not so desperate that you can't somehow claw your way out and pull yourself together and bring all your powers of concentration to bear to get your life together so you can follow that path. Jesus says Christianity is totally different. Your situation is way too desperate for that. It is way too messed up. You need to have somebody come in and pay the price for you, do the work for you. This is how God has reached to you. That's the difference, which means two things. If you're on this road, it means there's no room on that road for anything that displeases the king. I know that sounds like works, but it's not. Let me explain. Micah 6, 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love, mer- love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. For us, this means that anything contrary to the will of the king must be jettisoned from our lives. And that's a process that we go through. It's a process. And I know some people who do not want to follow Jesus because they know they're going to have to forgive somebody else in their life around them. I mean, it's not a requirement for salvation, but eventually you walk in the road with Jesus and he's going to go, okay, now let's work on that and let's get rid of that. I, for the last few months, have harbored this thing in my heart about somebody and one of our friends has helped me work through this a little bit. I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't want to give that up. I really want to be mad at that person for the rest of my life. That would really help me function correctly. Not. Okay, so, and, and this is the thing. Jesus comes along and he goes, you've got to give that up. You've got to give that up because there is nothing that goes on that road that displeases the king. And he calls us into true life. There's no room for grudges. There's no room for anything. Which leads to there's no room on that road for anything but you and Jesus. That's it. That's it. There's no room for your righteousness. There's no room for your ego. There's no room for your pride. I mean, we will never understand salvation unless we can say, I believe that Jesus died my death for me. And I recognize that the best things I have ever done in my life, my greatest accomplishments, are nothing when it comes to procuring acceptance of God or a place for me in his kingdom. Nothing. It is all grace. See, the narrowness leads to freedom because it's about a work that he has already done for us in our lives to save the people who are lost. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Guys, if you are somebody who's been trying and trying and doing and doing and doing, today is the day to enter the gate, to walk into freedom and hope and truth. Today is the day. It is not about your goodness. It is about his goodness. It's about his grace. It's about what he has done. And the only way into that is very narrow. It's believing in him and him alone. But that breaks the chains and begins to set us free as he walks us on this path that leads to freedom and grace and truth and life. I mean, I don't know if you guys understand it. There is a reason why we do communion every single week here. You know, because at communion, you take that cracker. You mind, Christ's body is broken for me. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds of his blood that was shed for you and I. 
And this isn't where you find grace. This is remembrance of that grace. It's remembrance of what he has done. It's the gate. It's the, this isn't the gate. Jesus was the gate. It's remembrance of the gate that we get to step into. And that leads us into the freedom of true life. The narrowness leads into grace and hope. The broadness leads to very, very narrow things. It is a great thing that our God doesn't come along and say, yeah, try your hardest to find me. I'll be on top of a mountain somewhere. Our God comes and says, you know what? I'm stepping down into the form of a man to live and die and rise from the dead to save lost and broken people. That is a God of grace. That is the narrow way. And so we trust him in that. The band's going to come up. And as they do, we're going to invite you guys to take communion and remember what that means in the midst of it. That it's not about your works. It's about what he has done. That this is the narrowness. It reminds us of that. There can be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, I mean, maybe you've spent a lot of your life trying to make God like you, trying to make other people like you. You've done all these things because that's how you think that you live on the narrow way because it's all about you. I'd encourage you to go and pray with them today. Because it's not about you. It's about him and what he has done. The difference that everything that has happened in your life before today, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but it means that it doesn't have to define you for the rest of your life. You can enter into grace and freedom and chains can begin to be broken so you can live in the fullness of the life that entering the narrow gate brings. There's offering boxes on the side wall and in the back. And we give because God gave so much to us, giving us something part of that worship. So you have that opportunity every week. Uh, there's some food in the back. We invite you guys to grab something to eat. Maybe make some friendships. Meet some new people. And if you're struggling and working through some of this stuff and not understanding how it goes, well, maybe you can start talking to somebody else about it. You know, because we, we are saved individually as people, but we still walk this road with each other. God intends for us to do that. And so begin to walk it with somebody else. So you can ask those hard questions and, and come to the grips with a place of understanding the narrowness of what the gospel is, but also the grace and the freedom that it leads us into. Because our God is good. And this is the place where Jesus has been leading this entire Sermon on the Mount to understand these two ways. You know, there's grace, and then there's everything else out there. And grace is the only way to live life that makes any sense at all. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would take us And show us what it means to truly live in the grace that you have provided. Father, so often we want to be a people who who want to say that that our trying and and our effort and have, have done something to procure your favor of us. And yet nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't mean we don't live certain ways, but it means that the way we live is simply out of response to what you have done in us. Teach us what it means to enter that narrow gate and live in the broadness and the expanse of the kingdom. Father, for people in this room this morning who are struggling with this whole idea that they want to be very broad-minded, not realizing how that broadness leads to such a narrowness. I ask that your spirit would begin to do a work there. That you would be the one that draws and calls and brings them to you. That all of us in this room today would be a people who surrender our lives before you. Understanding the goodness of the gospel. 
the grace of a God who reached to us so that we could be a people who stop striving so hard, who stop thinking it's all about us and what we do, and that we would simply come to the place where we believe that you are the God who has saved us, that you are the God who is worthy, that our lives be laid bare before you, and that we would live with you as our Savior, our God, our King, our Redeemer, and our friend. And all that we do, help us to understand and live the narrowness of what it means to live in the expansiveness of grace. We ask this in your Son's gracious and good name. Amen.